Welcome to Telegeography Explains the Internet, the show that explores the business, and in this episode, geomorphology, behind all of the ways humans stay connected around the world. I'm your host, Greg Bryan, and my guests today are both from the UK's National Oceanography Center. That's Isabel Yeo, researcher in geology and volcanology, and Michael Clare, principal researcher of ocean biogeoscience. Usually on this podcast, if we refer to the physical layer, it would be to layer one in the OSI model. But today we're going to talk about the actual physical layer, as in the ocean floor, fault lines, volcanoes, and things like that. You see, Mike and Izzy are geologists specializing on the seafloor, so their research has become vital for the submarine cable community. While most cable faults are due to human activity, like fishing and and anchors, as we will discuss, a fair number relate to changes on the floor of the ocean, including earthquakes, volcanoes, landslides, and even flooding on land, which was certainly news to me, as you will hear. We discuss the myriad ways that the dynamic nature of what lies under the surface of the ocean can damage submarine cables, both in the short and long term. We even get into the history of natural disasters and communications cables going back a century or more. As a geographer, I was particularly fascinated by how little we actually know about the ocean floor itself, despite the fact that, of course, water covers 70% of the Earth's surface. And Mike and Izzy even get into ways that submarine cables can help us provide additional data about the ocean floor to increase our knowledge of this dark world. We do talk about a specific event, which is what led them uh, to be on the podcast, having talked about this at a suboptic conference. That is the Tongan volcanic eruption, as well as ongoing threats to submarine cables, including how climate change could increase these risks and how we might start to mitigate them. So it was a great learning experience for me, and I think it will be for you or anyone interested in the global telecom space. Enjoy. All right, welcome to the show, Mike and Izzy. Hi, Hi. how you doing? All right, it's it's wonderful to have you guys on. Um, this is going to be really fun for me because I'm usually talking to people who work directly in the internet and all that kind of stuff, and I've got a couple of geologists on the on the call, so that's really cool. So, could you just um, both uh, in turn give a, a brief background on yourselves and uh, and and what you're doing here? After you, Izzy. Oh, okay. Um, well, hello, my name's Isabel Yeo. Um, I'm a geologist and volcanologist at the National Oceanography Centre in the UK, um, and my expertise is in volcanology. Excellent. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm Mike Clare. I'm also a geologist at the National Oceanography Centre in the UK. Uh, I study slightly different things. I study things like underwater landslides, avalanches of sand and mud, I think that we'll probably get onto. Um, and since 2019, I've also been working with the International Cable Protection Committee as their marine environmental advisor. Um, so that's pretty much how I kind of got involved with anything to do with subsea cables. Excellent. All right. Yeah. And that brings us to why you're on a podcast about the Internet, right? So so um, I want to just you know start with the very basics. So definitely most people who listen to the show are well familiar with the, the world of submarine cables. Um, they follow telegeography, 
but they might not be that familiar with the causes of a lot of submarine cable breaks. Everybody knows it's not sharks, <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, um, you know, and, and a lot of people are aware that, you know, occasionally you're going to have anchors and stuff like that. You guys are focusing on the rest of it. What is yep. that that is the, the danger to submarine cables? Yeah, I, and it's a good question because maybe more than three quarters of, of faults for subsea cables, the kind of 200 to 300 that happen each year on the annual network, relate, as you know, to interactions with fishing gear or accidental anchor drops. So mm -hmm. most of the attention gets paid there. That Every so often something happens, something big, something geological, which is kind of where we get interested, uh, where perhaps multiple cables can be damaged by one event almost instantaneously. Mm. I think depending on which statistics you look at, between less than 10 or 20 percent of cable faults worldwide uh, relate to what we call kind of geological events or geological processes. And geology usually means over thousands or millions of years. But these are kind of movements of the earth or, or changes, things like earthquakes or underwater landslides. And I guess ever since cables have been laid, there have been events like this that have, have impacted mm -hmm. the relatively small diameter cables and caused damage. Natural it's hazards. A, it's, sorry, I, yeah. Yeah, no, just to, to interrupt, it's, it's a really good point, I think, to sort of focus in on which is that the sort of uh, human-caused uh, breaks of submarine cables, except for in a very few sort of uh, bottleneck kind of areas, are very likely to only impact maybe a single cable, whereas yeah. these, uh, even if it's only 10 or 20%, these uh, uh, geologic events are, are likely to potentially impact many cables at once. Absolutely. So you, you could look at the footprint of some events that historically have, have been attributed to damaging cables, Take examples like offshore southwest Taiwan, mm -hmm. where some of the biggest tropical storms landfall. This has a huge impact for, for land-based infrastructure because of the high winds. But the huge amount of water that falls during those massive rainfall events uh, flushes down through rivers. It sends all that sand and mud offshore and can create avalanches of sand and mud, things we call turbidity currents, that can run through underwater canyons. And where cables cross those canyons, they can cause damage to those cables, causing mm -hmm. abrasion or breaks to them. And the footprint of those tropical cyclones can be in some cases as big as the main islands of Japan. Right. So multiple cable systems can be damaged almost at the same time, meaning that repairs are necessary because you can't reroute data through adjacent cables if they're all they're all damaged. Man, that is fascinating. So, so we're not even talking about we're going to get to, uh, especially from you, Izzy, a, a really dramatic one in, in the Tongan example. We're not necessarily talking about these dramatic earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes, but even just you know a really hard rain. You know, not to not to sort of underplay what a, what a cyclone or a hurricane can be like, but even even something like that, just like a lot of of, of water flowing in can can cause the seafloor to move around and damage cables. I, I I truly did not know that until this moment. So that's really cool. No, uh, I, I guess kind of nestled in in those fault data. I mean, Izzy's been looking into to work on a global basis, but particularly in places like the Caribbean on just the interactions of, of currents that happen on the seabed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it can absolutely, it doesn't even have to be an event, it can be a, a long term process. So where you have mm. regions, say with extremely rough seafloor, you've got a lot of rocks, a lot of gravel, stuff that's quite inhospitable. Um, mm. If you have a cable that lays particularly at an angle to a prevailing sort of current direction, over time, you can get abrasion on those cables, you can get chafe on those cables, and you can sometimes get suspension if you get winnowing underneath. So it's not even that you necessarily need an event, sometimes there are just environmental mm. sort of circumstances that are also right. pretty inhospitable for seafloor infrastructure. I suppose. 
it's it's almost like when you drop something in the sea, it's not just disappearing, but there's a whole world and ecosystem and everything under there as well as, as above the ground, right? So, yeah, that might be the take home uh, message from today. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, I, I definitely think that is. And it, it's one of the things that really got me interested in, in cables because the, the deep sea, you know, covers most of our planet. And we know so little about it because it's hard to go there. It's hard to make measurements there. So any measurements we get, any evidence that, that, that we're able to acquire is extremely valuable scientific information. So right. when cables start breaking in the deep sea in places may, where maybe we didn't expect it in the first place, it tells us that the deep sea is a far more interesting and dynamic place than we thought it would have been. Right. So when cables break, it's not that we're delighted but it does mean that we're starting to learn something else about an area that we maybe didn't have any data. We didn't have any opportunities to make measurements. So yeah, you have the, the flashlight shining at, the, at that particular place, whereas there, there, there's a huge ocean out there. It's really hard to uh, to sort of pinpoint other things, right? Yeah, you've you got to pick a place and cables have to pick a place. And sometimes it's not the right place at that mm-hmm. particular point in time. I think it's we often don't realize quite how much we don't know about the deep sea as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we're used to being able to track ourselves within a few meters with a mobile phone or use three words to figure out where we are. Um, okay. And then things happen in the oceans, you know, planes go missing and vessels disappear and all sorts of things happen. And we don't we just don't have the same level of observation in the oceans as we have other mm-hmm. places. Um, and that's both bad, you know, in terms of understanding what what some hazards might be. But also it means that cables give us a real insight into that. Yeah, so so I want to I want to talk about sort of the the start of this. So again, a lot of people familiar with telegeography's work will will know, you know, because we've talked a lot about this about the, the history of of submarine cables and you know going way back to the to the telegraph days. But um, I I take it that there's a history of faults with submarine cables that that is worth looking into as well. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so this this all goes way back, right, to the to the late eighteen hundreds. Is as the first cables were laid. Some of the the first surprises about the ocean, the fact that there's a ridge in the middle of the Atlantic, were discovered when the first telegraph cables were laid. And you know, those those early routes didn't last very long until mm-hmm. they needed to be repaired. And some aspects of that just relates to abrasion, to to, to lessons learned in how you design and build a telegraph cable. But way back in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, it was discovered off off West Africa that cables that were laid across the mouth of the Congo River, this is the second biggest river in in the world in terms of Mm. the water it discharges, they kept snapping. Mm. And so those cables kept breaking. Then a few years later in 1929, there was a magnitude 7 earthquake off the coast of Newfoundland and, and all the cables that connected North America to the United Kingdom snapped not exactly at the same time, they snapped one by one. Mm-hmm. And by looking at the times and the distances between those cable breaks, scientists actually maybe 30 years later were able to reconstruct that sequence of events mm-hmm. to show that a massive underwater landslide was triggered by that earthquake. It started to mix with the seawater as it went down the slope and created something like a snow avalanche, but made out of sand and mud. And that traveled about 800 kilometers into the deep sea on you know, on, on the sorts of angles of slopes that are the drainage angle on like a, a Premier League football pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were able to work out how fast these things went. So to recognize that the, maybe they went up to 20 meters per second. Wow. And wow. previously, people thought this was a very boring place, the deep sea. You know, the mm-hmm. idea that kind of deep waters run still was was really kind of kicked into touch by these first ever measurements of of these flows. And, and these things have continued to happen. 
in some cases, they're relatively rare events. You know, a repeat event of that Grand Banks event from 1929 off Newfoundland would be quite significant for the internet connection between North America and the UK. But these events, you know, they happen on the order of every hundred years, every thousand years. So uh, maybe we haven't experienced another one. Maybe we won't in the next 30, mm-hmm. 50, 100 years. Who knows? Um, but in other places like the Congo Canyon that extends offshore Angola and West Africa, uh, there is a history of, of multiple cable breaks as a result of these avalanches. Um, so we know that some systems, submarine canyons, which are a bit like the rivers of the deep sea, some of these systems can be extremely active uh, with multiple flows per year. Um, but without the cable breaks, we wouldn't necessarily have known this. Yeah, that is that is fascinating. I mean, you know, there's a certain to extent which we take for granted, or at least um, nerds like me, that, you know, you can go into Google Earth and you can see, you know, where all the uh, sort of uh, plates meet up and, and all the ridge lines in the ocean and that sort of thing. We had no idea any of that was even there, even just a few decades ago, basically, right? So, Yeah, and, you know, and some of the first scientific observations in the ocean come from those, those early cable routes. The first mm-hmm. evidence of complex life in the deep sea came uh-huh. in the late 1800s from first dredges of samples from the middle of the Atlantic. The mm-hmm. fundamentals of plate tectonics, the fact that we do have these kind of plate contacts that spread in the middle of the ocean, they exist. And, you know, I guess... To these days, um, we're discovering volcanoes that we never knew on the seafloor. Yes, exactly. So I think that cues us up very well for uh, this paper. That So the reason that I got you guys on the show was that uh, my colleague Tim Strong was at the Suboptic Conference and saw you, uh, you guys um, uh, present this Tonga paper. So remind listeners, because I think a lot of people listening to the show would, would be familiar with the event, but just as a reminder, what happened in Tonga and, and uh, what happened to the cables there? Yeah, so I'll, I'll do that. Please, <laughs> so yeah. the um, the Tonga eruption was uh, quite newsworthy uh, eventually, but it didn't start that way. So the main bit of the eruption people have heard about is a, a really large explosive event on January the 15th, 2022. And that was like the most explosive volcanic eruption that we've had in about 150 years. So really comparable wow. with like major uh, global events over the last sort of bit of uh, recorded history, really. I and mean, it was a huge event, but actually the eruption started quite a lot before that. It started on the 20th of December the previous year. Mm. Um, and uh, the volcano that, that was involved, we call it Hunger Volcano. It's also sometimes called uh, Hunga Tonga Hunga Harpai, which is the name of the island. <laughs> I'm not going yeah. to have to repeat that. Am I? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, you are. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> not as bad as the Iceland one from a few years <laughs> back, right? So, I, yeah, I, I spent good. a lot of time practicing saying yeah. that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard to say. We're going to use Hunger Volcano, though, which is actually the correct name. Um, right. But it's part of a string of different volcanoes uh, in that area that are, they're there because it's a subduction zone. So we've got one mm-hmm. tectonic plate going underneath another one. And because of that, we have what's called a volcanic arc. And this region of, of sort of the ocean is extremely volcanically active. There's about 70, 80 known volcanoes in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the last five years, there's been almost one eruption a year. Um, and typically, they're pretty small. And that's exactly how this event started. So uh, we use a thing called volcanic explosivity index to describe volcanic eruptions, which is basically how much stuff came out of them and how quickly Mm. um and usually they're pretty low one or two so you know their volcanic eruptions are still dangerous but they're not global events but this um eruption in tonga while it started off a vei one or two ended up being a five uh, which is a really really major explosive event Um, it's a tight scale then yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, it goes it, it goes from from not very much to quite a lot very quickly um 
and it had huge impact. So this very, very explosive event on, on January the 15th, um, it sent shockwaves around the world four times. It wow. generated tsunamis both uh, in the Pacific, but also in other oceans related to that mm. shockwave. Um, it caused a load of different uh, impacts on, on the seafloor. The uh, sort of area in the middle we call the uh, uh, Hunga Volcano or Caldera, which means it's got a big wide depression in the middle. Um, the mm. depth of that went from about 100 metres to about 900 metres. So it blew wow. almost six cubic kilometres of material out of the crater in the middle. Um, so it left a big hole uh, in the middle. It generated pyroclastic flows. Um, so all kinds of different sort of typical volcanic hazards associated with volcanic eruptions on land, uh, but happening in the ocean, uh, which mm. is a bit more of a complicated process. Um, because you can't observe it, so you don't really know what's going on. You don't want to be super close to those eruptions usually. You know, you don't you don't want to yes. be sort of proximal in a boat because you will be killed. Um, so we don't have many direct observations. So what we have to do to try and reconstruct that, because you also can't see it from satellites because there's a big umbrella mm. cloud associated with right, it, right. is to use sort of reports from land and from people to try and reconstruct what happened. Um, and that's what's happened with some of the tsunami stuff. But the other thing that happened um, in this eruption, which was uh, sort of very unfortunate for, for Tonga communities, but quite fortunate for, from a scientific perspective, was mm -hmm. that there are two subsea cables there, so two telecommunication cables that go uh, one along the sort of southern side of the volcano and one along the east, one which connects the islands and Tonga together, so they're domestic uh, cable, and one which connects Tonga to the rest of the world. Right. So they're international cable. And both of those cables were damaged really seriously in this eruption. So uh, they were basically broken um, along really long uh, sections of their length. Um, and that was really bad for, for Tongan communities, because obviously in a time of disaster, the very last thing you want is your mm -hmm. internet to go down. Right. Uh, so it had a real sort of direct impact in terms of, of supplying aid, of understanding what had happened on different islands. Um, right. But from a scientific perspective, it's quite useful because, again, it tells us about some of those subsea processes. That otherwise, we'd have no idea about because we can't see through the, the top of the sea very easily. Um, right. So those breaks happened sort of in quite... Um, quite quickly after the, the initial explosion. And I'll let Mike talk a little bit about speeds in a minute because uh, that's some work that we've been doing. Um, but from that perspective, that was a really, really useful um, bit of information because we've never been able to understand really where or how fast uh, seafloor flows are going before. Um, so that was something that was quite new in this eruption. And the impact, not, not just cutting them off from the rest of the world, but even from each other because they had a domestic cable. So there are multiple islands that, that can't, can no longer communicate with each other very easily at all. Right. So. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, the Tongan islands are quite isolated and I think the more isolated you are, the more important communications are. Mm -hmm. um, and in this event, there was obviously a tsunami associated with it and it was very hard to understand um, even from Tongatapu, which is sort of the, the main island, um, what the impact of that had been on different islands and there was like a really horrible few days where there was you know there was no idea who you know how much damage had been done whether or not right. lives had been lost there was a really sort of spooky um, emergency signal just being emitted from one of the islands but they couldn't make contact with it to figure out what had happened uh, and so that was really quite a difficult and traumatic time I think for families because you couldn't figure out what had happened to, to other members of your families or friends in other places. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, of course, when you're talking to people outside the telecom industry, they always think that we're communicating via satellites and, and whatnot, you know, just to be clear that the satellite coverage for a place like Tonga would be very uh, spotty. But I take it would also be difficult, given that there's a bunch of uh, material in the atmosphere, right? So... Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it was a challenging time all round, I think, because, I mean, the ashfall was also impacting local water supplies mm -hmm. and a whole, whole host of things. And uh, the remoteness of the location of, of the Kingdom of Tonga 
from say where repair ships were stationed mm. the ship had to come from Papua New Guinea so it's a decent steam to get there um, you talked about that the breaks related to say anchor drops or fishing and and so another difference between the kind of natural hazards and those sorts of events maybe they may damage one cable maybe a, an anchor drag you know you maybe one two three and then the navy gets involved and some, mm. someone alerts the vessel right um in, in this instance, the cables were damaged uh, between 89 and 105 kilometers length of these cables. So this is... Oh, wow. So far- we're not talking like a, a little break where that you can go and you just splice one one sort of uh, uh, place, but but huge segments of cables. So exactly. So this is, this is not the sort of length that you would typically have in hand locally mm-hmm. for repair. And it's, right. it's a reason why, you know, over a year now, the domestic cable is still not repaired, still waiting mm-hmm. for manufacture of, of, of appropriate cable. Well, um, bad timing with, with, you know, sort of supply chain issues going on. And, and, and so many cable ships were all uh, sort of understaffed at that time, too, I know from, from the rest of the industry. So, yeah. Yeah, you certainly compound things against the background of a pandemic. And you know, this, this often happens with, with natural hazards. It's not necessarily just the first thing that is the issue. There, there's multiple things that can happen concurrently. If you've got ash fall, you're cut off from communications mm-hmm. and you have the misfortune to also have a pandemic going on at the time. Um, you know, it, it really adds a lot of a lot of complications. But for us, when this event happened, the, the thing that really took us by surprise was, well, first of all, this volcano really exploded in a big way and suddenly went very rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that caught us by surprise was was the locations of these cable faults. So we initially thought, well, maybe this is to do with local landslides and slope failures of the flanks from around the volcano because the distances that were involved were so big. The, the, the international cable is, is more than 70 kilometres away from the volcano well, I thought there's no way that this could be a, a kind of a flow on the sea floor that did it. It must be something else. Right. Um, and so Izzy was really kind of catalyzed the proposal because she's a volcanologist and actually understands how these things work. And uh, when we were able to, to get in with collaborators, um, so support from uh, both Tonga Cable Limited uh, and, and other collaborators through the International Cable Protection Committee, they helped us work a case um, towards the Natural Environment Research Council in the UK to get funds together to pay for a vessel to get out a couple of months after the eruption. Mm-hmm. So we had a detailed map of what the seafloor looked like before. And then with collaborators at NIWA in New Zealand and supported by the Nippon Foundation, we're able to get the first ever detailed before and after picture of what happens on the seafloor after a, a major eruption. Um, and, and the results were mind-blowing. We, we were completely taken aback by what we saw. So what, what was it that was surprising and unusual, the distance from the eruption that the breaks happened? Uh, yeah, so uh, several things were really, really quite surprising. First of all, the size of the hole that it blew in the middle was quite exciting. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the caldera, you mean? In the yeah, yeah okay, that's yeah. A, mm-hmm. a pretty major seafloor change. Um, but in terms of the, the cables, what we were expecting, you know, you go in with a hypothesis when you write a scientific proposal because people like to see that. And what we thought had happened is that the event was so sort of large that it probably triggered little landslides from uh, other volcanoes in the area, other slopes. Um, and what we found actually was that that it's what had happened at all. That These cables were buried by these huge deposits, all of which were sourced from the volcano and which had traveled tens or hundreds even kilometers right. away from it underwater. And what we saw was um, really, really thick uh, deposits of material around the flanks of the volcano and further away so in places um, one of the areas where where there's cable there was 
tens of meters of, of material deposited on top of it, um, all of which sitting on top of the cable. You mean, and and that's enough to to sort of crush it essentially from from being able to work anymore. Yeah, so it it can crush it. It can move it around. Like mm-hmm. cables are they're not super. Um, I mean, they're they're resilient, but if you hit them at several. Uh, you know, right. tens or hundreds of kilometers with quite a large amount of, of gravel, um, most things will give way eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not it's not a huge surprise given the size of the, of the flows that were hitting them that, that they were damaged. Um, and then the other thing that was, was really interesting was that we saw multiple phases of this. So it wasn't just one single flow um, that came from the volcano that damaged all the cables. Mm-hmm. There were multiple pulses of material that were traveling really long way, really, really quickly um, and intersecting these, these subsea cables and burying them. Um, and we really hadn't expected to see that. We hadn't realised uh, either the size of, of the, the flows that were going to be sort of uh, caused by by the, the volcanic eruption, nor in any way how far they'd travel or how how big they'd be. Mm-hmm. So what we have are these kind of like these incised shoots, like slides, right, on the side of the volcano, which is locally up to 40 degrees steep, that have, have carved into the bedrock, the volcanic bedrock, which is very competent. Right. They, they've in some places cut down kind of 100 meters deep wow. in, into the bedrock. And as they hit the breaking slope at the bottom of the volcano, you can imagine that like, the slope changes quite abruptly where the cable is laid on the relatively smooth area of seafloor. Suddenly they, they dump a lot of that material. So they, they just drop a lot of that gravelly stuff. But another part of the flow, like snow avalanches that continue mm. running, in some cases, like run up a valley, right. um, they, they've circled around, gone along the length of the cable, and they've, they've been steered around other underwater volcanoes, which have kind of basically sloshed around like, um, like, a, like a slide at the, uh, the fairground as the flows have swung around and then finally hit the, the international cable. So we, we know from the timing from satellite observations and, and, and eyewitness observations that parts of this eruption cloud collapsed into the ocean uh, mm-hmm. in, in, into things that Izzy's talked about that we call pyroclastic flows, these things that can run out very fast on land. We know very little about what happens when they go into mm-hmm. the ocean. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge flux of very heavy and dense material that's piled its way into the water down the steep slope of the volcano. And we know the time that those things went into the ocean. We know the time of the cable breaks. So the first domestic cable broke about 15 minutes after that gives us a speed of about up to 120 kilometers per hour that wow. this flow was moving. So this is the fastest flow that anybody has ever recorded on the sea floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the poor cable didn't stand a chance, but the flow kept going. And by the time it reached the domestic cable, it was traveling at least 50 kilometers an hour and maybe wow. even faster if a later flow was responsible for breaking it. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also discovered that all the biology on the seafloor bar in a few places was either completely smothered or wiped out. Um, So this was a really profound event for a number of reasons. And there's just a few places behind some boulders where some organisms survived. And after this event, will have stepped out and said, guys, did you see that? (laughs) And none none of their friends are there anymore. Yeah, man. So so you mentioned that this was, you know, uh, a five on a scale of five or, or something like that, like like a, 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 an unusual event, right? So yeah, I mean the scale goes above five. It's not you know the, gotcha, the level gotcha, of like a yeah, Yellowstone yeah. style eruption, right? Yeah. Right, 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 right. So, but are there lessons for for smaller of, uh, events that that you can draw from having gotten this uh, good new data? So this is something that Mike and I have talked about a little bit about resilience to to volcanic eruptions. I think it's pretty mm-hmm. difficult. The um, for large eruptions like the one that we've just had, I mean, 
you're going to be if you were going to try and sort of uh, use a standoff distance, you'd be talking about hundreds of kilometers. And for mm-hmm. events that are this rare, that's probably not worth doing. Um, right, right. What what I think is probably more useful, I mean, is to understand obviously where where volcanoes are and. We are doing a better job of mapping the oceans and of understanding them than we ever did before. Mm-hmm. Um, but still quite a lot of work to be done. So in terms of mapping a route and understanding local hazards, that's really important. And again, the subsea cable industry is actually doing quite a lot of that mapping, uh, right. which is good of it. Thanks, everyone. Um, yeah. <laughs> much appreciated. Um, but really, I think it's in terms of understanding where those hazards actually are. So for volcanic mm-hmm. hazards, if you know where you're likely to experience uh, high levels of activity or um, understanding how how much damage can be associated with a volcanic event, which is you know along tens or hundreds of, of kilometers of cable, having the facility to repair um, in those areas a little bit faster, or to have the materials available to carry out those kind of repairs, is probably the the most resilient you can be. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a role that cables can play in terms of uh, some of the new challenges that are being developed for monitoring. So we are we are looking into some of this with some various very interesting different people. Um, but in terms of what you can understand about how active volcanic arcs are and which volcanoes are the most active by using things like distributed acoustic sensing through cables. Um, right. So perhaps there's a bit of a feedback there where you know you can use the cables to understand what hazards they're potentially open to as well. Yeah, I, th- I think that part is really fascinating. So, so we had we had talked before uh, the show uh, about how my my background is geography, and I went to a school that was particularly focused on like remote sensing and lidar and stuff like that. We we have a great deal of data about land cover, you know, and what's going on. We, we uh, I, I wasn't even really aware of how we collect data about the seafloor. So it, maybe you could go a little bit deeper into that, especially the role that, that submarine cables um, might play with, with, well, you'll have to explain it because I, I understand it very poorly with, with like uh, rally scattering and stuff like that, right? So. Do, do you want to talk about multi-beam mapping, Izzy, and, and how we map the seafloor? I could talk about mapping. So I think we should lead with the fact that neither Mike or I are experts in this at all. So we sure. work with other people. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe do a podcast on it because uh, there are some really, really great, very interesting <laughs> yeah. people I could talk about. I'm, I'm never an expert in anything I'm talking about. So uh, it's, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, multi-beam data. And I think a lot of people listening to your podcast will be very familiar with acquisition of multi-beam. But it involves bouncing mm-hmm. sound off the seafloor to figure out how far away it is. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, correcting that for things like how complicated your water column is to produce a map of, of what the seafloor looks like. Um, there are a couple of different things I think that are worth noting for that. We tend to use statistics that only 20% of the oceans are mapped um, and that really depends on what resolution you're thinking about. So that's a, mm. like a, a statistic that you hear a lot but that's a, a, a relatively low resolution. So I think it's 150 metres uh, uh, as a, a grid size is what we've mapped 20% of the oceans at. It's not hugely helpful. It's better than nothing. Um, mm-hmm. But there are lots of different resolutions you can map at and you can use lots of different pieces of equipment to do that. Um, so what we are looking to move towards is, is sort of better coverage at higher resolution. But the other right. thing that we tend to do is we tend to map something once and assume that we've done it. Um, and actually, as we've talked about already, the seafloor is a very dynamic place. So it's not... Um, stationary it's not it's not not changing and unless you do repeat mapping in the same areas so unless you cover the same routes more than once uh, you won't necessarily understand how the seafloor is evolving either so it's not just coverage that's important it's repeat coverage um, and that's a much harder case to make I think a lot of the time right it kind of reminds me of that old joke you know where the the guy who had too many drinks lost his keys on the street and he's looking around the the street lamp another guy comes up he's like well where were you when you lost me he's like I was over there by that alley but Here's where the light is. Right? So, yeah. Yeah, it's exactly like that. Certainly, I mean, thinking about um, future opportunities or improvements, um, t- 
typically multi-beam surveys are required before you lay a cable. Mm -hmm. If there has been an instance of damage, it's quite rare that multi-beam surveys are required to try and diagnose exactly what's happened. So Mm -hmm. here's a relatively rare instance where that has happened. And, you know, many cable repair vessels don't have, um, you know, a hydrographer and a multi-beam system, at least one that's operational most of the time. Right. So in, in many of these instances, we might be able to learn a, more, a lot more about future resilience and finding maybe maybe the least worst place if there is a, an area that's, that's kind of particularly hazarded that, that has to be crossed mm-hmm. by gaining those mm-hmm. new data. The, the things we definitely could have learned from this sort of eruption, but but we didn't have the data to do, was to try and understand what the precursor conditions were in the build-up to it really going bang. Mm-hmm. Um, as he says, it kind of took us by surprise, but if we'd had monitoring data like we do for other volcanoes, uh, like Mount Etna, for example, or Yellowstone and other places that mm-hmm. were onshore or in well-instrumented places, we'd be able to get some handle on what do the signals look like, how do they change before the thing went so you could get a better early warning out. And, and right. you know, Tonga, Fiji, these sorts of areas that challenging places because they're, they're, they're island nations uh, with a lot of sea and a lot of volcanoes in between. So the ability to turn seafloor cables into sensors themselves is really exciting. Mm-hmm. And so this doesn't now, because of technological advances, it doesn't doesn't necessitate the installation of smart nodes or, 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 or new sensors to them. This is using the optical fiber that lies at the heart of a you know modern telecoms cable and potentially along a data carrying fiber or, or a dark fiber. Mm-hmm. So, so tools like distribute acoustic sensing, which look at uh, basically the, the reflections of, of light within the cable to pinpoint precisely where a fault has occurred or where something else has happened. So maybe a perturbation like an earthquake, a volcanic activity on the seafloor has happened. Um, state of polarization and interferometry, which which basically look at changes to the signal that you put into the cable. And then as it comes back out, you look to see how it's changed. Mm-hmm. And we can relate that to different events or processes. In some cases, that might be interactions with fishing gear, but the stuff that we're really interested in is turning these cables into basically seismic monitoring networks. Right. So we can hear ground motions from earthquakes. We can pick up the rumbling before a volcano actually erupts. And this would provide useful information ahead of time. It might not stop a cable fault from happening, but might right. allow you to identify a time window within which it could. But it also provides useful information to coastal communities to say, you know, a potential tsunami genic event could be happening. Right. Um, and it would mean that we wouldn't be caught by surprise by these sorts of events. It kind of seems totally inappropriate in this day and age with the technology that we have, that we're caught by surprise by these sorts of events that can be so, so damaging to, to coastal communities. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's, it seems like a, a real happy accident that um, we've, we've covered the earth and submarine cables uh, for essentially the commercial interests of building the internet, but that it could be used to save lives in a natural disaster, essentially. Yeah, and, and there's lots of challenges, and this, this technology is still quite new. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there's a whole host of challenges as well, you know, um, potential kind of legal obstructions. Does, does it represent a kind of a different use of cables? I, I think in this case, not because you're using the cable itself, you're using the optical fiber, and, and you're not changing its purpose. It's still able to transmit data traffic. Right. And Izzy, did you have something to add there? No, I think Mike pretty much covered everything I was going to say. The only thing I, I had to add was that we think, again, that we we are monitoring uh, the Earth, but we're not really. And if you had a 
a major active volcano on land near to a, a population center, you'd have a full set of instrumentation. I mean, most of them have a volcano observatory. But as soon as that volcano is underwater, even by you know, a few a few meters. Right. Um, there's basically very, very little monitoring at all. There are almost no cabled observatories for volcanoes. Um, mm-hmm. And there is very, very little uh, remote observation technology that's capable of providing uh, real monitoring. So it's it's not surprising that we're surprised uh, when those volcanoes mm-hmm. are up, but maybe we, we shouldn't be. Um, and maybe we should be thinking about, um, yeah, ways we can provide warnings to, to particularly to island communities which are particularly vulnerable um, especially in regions where those hazards are likely to be compounded by other things like climate change um, right. and particularly in areas where they are unlikely to have uh, a GDP that's going to allow them to put in things like cabled instrumentation if we can mm-hmm. use uh, telecommunication cables to provide monitoring I think that's a real sort of uh, service to mankind yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, I think it, it, it's certainly worth saying that, you know, maybe this was a one in a thousand year event for, for this particular volcano, but there's many more volcanoes along the arc. But generally, you know, cable companies avoid volcanoes where they can. Right. They, yes, exactly. It, it, it's got gnarlier regular terrain. Quite often there's kind of a richness of biodiversity that you don't want to disturb. So mm-hmm. for a number of reasons, you avoid them. But in certain regions... Particularly Where people on volcanic, live right near them. People live on might, a volcanic yeah. island, then mm-hmm. there's no way to avoid it. Right. So, so you, you need to bite the bullet on on that front. But still, the the number of faults, you know, you could count on a couple of hands probably that that are attributed to volcanoes since records begin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The thing that's changing, um, and we're looking particularly over like a 25 to 30 year design life for a cable. Obviously, different cables, different routes will vary. Um, is climate right, the right climate is changing and the the external threats that cables and landing stations face will change and that is not going to be uniform geographically so as mm-hmm. izzy said it, it's probably not just the one hazard you want to think about it's multiple hazards and um, and even fishing is something which people don't think about within the context of climate change mm-hmm. but as the oceans warm fish are moving towards higher latitudes mm. um by several degrees is forecast over the next decades so that means the areas that maybe previously weren't commercially fished may well be in future right. so cables in those areas that were not designed or buried to withstand fishing may become uh you know exposed to that sort of external threat Mm-hmm. Um, but climate change, you know, it affects us all, but it is now affecting things like coastal erosion at landing stations. Right. It's affecting the intensity degree of seafloor currents and things like the tropical cyclones that we talked about at the beginning in, in, in Taiwan. We're seeing that their focus is shifting poleward, uh, so, so right. towards the south in Taiwan, that their intensity is changing, they're slowing, there's more rainfall. So things that used to maybe be one in 100-year events are becoming one in 30-year events in those sorts of areas. Mm-hmm. And one in 30-year event is the sort of thing you care more about if your design life is 30 years. Right, right, right. So so we need to start thinking differently about sort of mitigation of these risks, uh, especially as climate change will increase or, or change them. How do you work with the submarine cable community to say, you know, th- th- this is... Uh, best practices to avoid these kind of risks. Like, um, obviously, you go and, and do things like speak at suboptic, but is is there a sort of recursive relationship going on? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I view this as very much like a virtuous circle. That um, mm-hmm. the, the thing that really got me interested in the subsea cable industry, apart from the fact that like natural hazards have damaged the infrastructure and we're learning stuff, was um, 
strikes me there's a very collegiate atmosphere and there's a willingness to share information. Mm-hmm. So whilst there might be sensitivities around precise locations of, of individual cable systems, but it's an industry that's always been keen to learn from things that haven't worked out. Right. So all, all the way back to cable breaks in the early 1900s, there's been a, a move to say, right, well, if it doesn't work there, let's move somewhere else. And data have been shared with, with scientists and, and with academics to, to then say, well, we don't understand the process. Can you understand the process and then feed that back to us so we can design um, you know, more appropriate routes? Um, so organizations like the International Cable Protection Committee, um, you know, on an annual basis, publish um, you know, a, a list of, of cable uh, repair times and, and look on a, a kind of a regional to, to national basis and also within areas beyond national jurisdiction of where cables are damaged um, to try and then learn from that. So we can use those sorts of databases to track trends such as, you know, climate change forced impacts on on subsea cables right um and and so i think a real strength of the the collaboration there is is a willingness to share that information the instances of damage and then to listen back it's also worth saying that you know the industry itself is very cognizant and aware of things like climate change so the the icpc has a position statement on climate change that recognizes you know it's a real thing and it's happening now it will change in the future um, and has commissioned research alongside, you know, funding from said research councils in the UK uh, that Izzy and I have benefited from to try and identify, you know, where are the hotspots of, of climate change impacts likely to be in future? Yeah, that, that brings up a good point that I wanted to, to uh, focus on a little bit would be that you guys work for the UK government, um, but that there's an interest here from not just global governments uh, from from large countries to small, even a very large country like the U.S. has the the potential to lose a significant amount of communications, even if it's not cut off the way that a Tonga kind of country uh, island geography would be. But is is there any opportunity to get the industry itself interested uh, in sort of funding this work, in, in making sure that all of the data are exchanged in a sort of neutral platform, that kind of thing? So, so some, some aspects of that are already undergoing. Mm-hmm. Um, so several cable companies, survey companies are sharing data through the Seabed 2030 initiative. So the idea to, to try and have mapped the entirety of the ocean by 2030. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. um, and because cable routes are going into frontier areas where no one's been before, right. those data are the first of their kind. So, so they're contributing towards that. Um, in, in terms of funding this work, I, I guess often it happens on a not a needs must basis, but mm-hmm. as and when there is an issue, sure. then there's an opportunity to fund things. We're certainly also kind of open to collaborations to try and identify issues before there are issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's particularly relevant within the area of climate change. And that's certainly where support from ICPC has been very helpful, trying to think about where might those future hotspots of, of climate change hazards be. Yeah. I mean, even to your earlier point, Izzy, that, that, um, planning for having more local ability to repair should be more cost effective for the cable owners, right? Than commissioning a ship from, from, you know, tens of thousands of kilometers away uh, so that, that there are things they can do here, exchanging data with you guys that, that might uh, make them essentially more profitable even. Right. 
I mean, yes, that's that's the ultimate aim. And hopefully the research we do is useful. Uh, but yes, I think so. By identifying where those risks are likely to manifest in the future and how they're likely to change and what the scale of, of the kind of damage they're likely to cause is, then I think that, yeah, we can inform things um, in order to, to improve at least yeah, cost effectiveness. Hopefully that, that results in, in profit. Um, and also to identify, I think, you know, it's not just repairs it's it's sort of planning for the future as well so Mm -hmm. with new routes um you maybe don't want to put your cable landing station and switch to a a land-based fiber within a couple of meters of sea level Um, because if you start getting storm surges and stuff then that that whole bit of infrastructure is at risk so from that side as well i think some of the research that we do is quite useful uh, particularly in terms of identifying where that is Um, and a lot of that data exists it's actually publicly available but it's really quite impenetrable Uh, if you want to go and download some of those those models um, it's quite hard to do without the right sort of bits script and the right code so uh, turning some of that more complicated climate prediction data into products that are usable by by industry I think is probably useful mm-hmm. right right just the consumption of the data and probably there's you know complex models and 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 all that sort of thing to to get through but that what they would be looking for is just like well tell me what what where I need to be or what geographies are the most vulnerable and that sort of thing right so. yeah exactly yeah, excellent. All right. So um, I've really learned a lot here. So I appreciate you guys a lot for doing this. Um, ultimately, what do you think the call to action is for the industry? I mean, that's what we've been talking about. But if, if you had the opportunity to sort of like, you know, have their ear and say, this is this is what you need to really think about over the next, say, three to five years. What is what is top of, of mind for you guys? So I, I think quite a lot about the the spectrum of events that could impact cables. So there's certainly things that you can deal with. You can protect for burial, uh, for, for you can bury for protection for, mm-hmm. for fishing activity. You can engage with local fishers to help them understand what the potential impacts are and, and how to come to kind of a, a shared agreement on using the seabed. Mm-hmm. You can't have a conversation with a volcano uh, right. or a submarine landslide. Um, there's a compelling need to gather more data to understand uh, the granularity of the seabed. And so that's the capture data really to fill the gaps um, of of what we're missing. As Izzy said, you know, maybe 20, 30% of the seafloor is mapped in detail. Mm -hmm. So we need to start closing those gaps. And there's an opportunity to do that collectively between researchers and industries such as, you know, subsea telecommunications. Um, In terms of, of resilience, I'm always amazed when we look at areas that are tectonically, seismically, volcanically active, actually quite how resilient the network is, how few cable faults there are Mm -hmm. due to natural hazards. So there are a whole range of events which are relatively small, which don't damage cables. And I'd love to learn more about those. What sets the threshold Mm -hmm. above which you actually get damage and Mm -hmm. above which you care? Because some of those other processes are important for a host of other reasons. But a cable fault is a binary thing. It tells you did break or didn't break. We don't know about the things, as Izzy talked about, things like abrasion and chafe due to seafloor currents, the things which are the kind of slow slow nibbling things which might lead you to failure over several years. Right. Um, And I think it's those things that are going to be emphasised and exaggerated by future climate change. They're the things that might take us by surprise in future that we should be thinking about. but thinking about this spectrum of a you know one in a thousand year massive volcano, it's quite a hard thing to design for. So maybe in certain areas you have distinct mitigation measures. 
in other places think about the kind of the slow creeping issues that might just change over years or decades. Mm-hmm. Um, one glove's not going to fit all, and it's going to be very different depending on the region you're in. So trying to understand that context, I think, is the important thing. And to understand context, we need data. It's a, that's really interesting, almost like a, a reverse survivor bias kind of situation <laughs> where where the, the ones that break and, and break the worst get the attention, but that there are, are long-term sort of like uh, problems that could lead to, you know, faults, but just in a much more gradual fashion. That's interesting. Yeah, I think the one thing I'd add to what I think was a really good summary there by Mike is also understanding how those different things interact. We tend to look at individual events in terms of a single cause, uh, mm-hmm. but there are lots of different complex mm-hmm. interactions in, in global Earth systems. And so you may get um, progressive damage or, or progressive vulnerability of cables due to a, a combination of factors and understanding how those are all linked together, how climate's going to impact other factors, I think, again, is another way that we can plan for the future. Right. Absolutely. Last time I checked, uh, telecom equipment doesn't like to be wet. So that's, that's an easy one to start there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Excellent. Well, the, the, like I said, the, guys, this is really fascinating. I, I much appreciate your time, especially I know, Izzy, you're on your, your way out for, for a long trip there. So I'm, I'm glad that we got, got you on before you had to go out. Um, listeners that want to keep up with you guys, um, try to catch you, obviously, at Suboptic, where I heard you gave some great uh, talk, but um, how, how can listeners follow along with what you're doing? Well, we'll be at conferences coming up. We'll be at European Subsea Cables Association. We'll be at Submarine Networks EMEA in London. Um, you can check us on our website on the knock.ac.uk to see you know what's going on more broadly in the areas of, of ocean research. Um, We're on Twitter. Ah. We're on Twitter. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> I, I am so thankful that I'm not, but uh, many of our listeners are. Yes, we're on Twitter for as long as it lasts. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thanks so much to both of you. This was great fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. It was a real joy. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, my pleasure. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Telegeography Explains the Internet comes from the experts here at Telegeography. It's edited and produced by Jane Miller, and it's hosted by me, Greg Bryan. And I also wrote that theme song you're listening to right now. To learn more about our data, jump over to telegeography.com, and we'll see you on the internet.